Well, it's good to be with you this morning again. I've been here a couple of years ago and spoke a few times, and it's always good to be in a different place, in a, a new place, to be able to share and just um, encourage people and just um, fill them in what God's doing in our lives, but also what we feel He's doing around the world. Um, for those of you who don't know me, just a little bit of a background. I was, uh, my wife Rose and I, we've been married 37 years. We um, we have four sons and six grandchildren, and we pastored a church in Jackson County for 20 years, and we left that church in January of 05, and we went to New Zealand for uh, a year, just about a year, um, came back in December, and we just had been feeling for probably six or seven years um, before we left our church that, uh, at least I was feeling, that I just wasn't in the right spot. And what I mean by that, I I knew who I was. I was a child of God. God had done a lot of healing and restoration in my life, but I just didn't feel that I was doing exactly what I should be doing. I kind of felt out of place. And so consequently, because of that, I was really never happy. Um, And so we left in January of 05, and we just had been feeling that God was going to give us a traveling ministry. We didn't know what that would entail. Um, New Zealand was kind of a big step for us. Um, that's a little bit farther than Jackson County than we normally go. But anyway, we, um, we went there, and when we came back, we just thought we'd come back, and people you know, wanted to know what we were going to do. We didn't know what we were going to do. So in February of '06, we went with the, the people that ran the ministry we were a part of in New Zealand. We went with them on a two-month trip to Europe, and um, that was just an amazing opportunity for us. And the main message that we speak and teach on is the Father heart of God. And it just met a lot of awesome people. And just really God was confirming to us the ministry of traveling and just sharing this message. And it's a very simple message. It's, you know, it's, it, it can be theologically deep, but doesn't need to be theologically deep. Of course, it will never be theologically deep with me because I'm not there. But it was just amazing to just go and share his love. And then in April of 06, we were invited to Korea. And that seems to be the place that God is sending us the most. Um, I've been there three times, well, two times this year. And I go again this Thursday for a couple of weeks. But the trip Thursday will be our 12th time, my 12th time in three and a half years. And so it's been amazing. And then we had prayed and asked God to open doors for us to speak in the States because the problem with going to Korea is, especially if you're on Korean Airlines, Korean Airlines was made for Koreans. And so <laughs> I have two permanent um, emblems of Korean Airline on each hip, sitting on that seat there for 14 hours going to uh, Korea. It's a little rough, but, um, but no, we enjoy I enjoy that. Rose enjoys it when she's able to come. But every door the Lord has opened in the States has been with Korean churches in Georgia and South Carolina, been to uh, Los Angeles um, three or four times this year already, and it's all been with Korean churches. And so for now, God just has made that seem to be the main door that's open. So we go there and it's with the message that we teach. It really goes over well with with who we are. Number one, God has worked a great deal of things in our heart, but also there's a lot of things with just my appearance that give me a lot of um, mana would be a Korean, uh, New Zealand word, but just a lot of um, influence with Korean people. Number one, my size. Um, I'm the largest human being that some of them have ever seen. 
um, <laughs> we went to uh, the first time we were there in April of '06. The uh, the um, some of the brothers, one was from uh, New Zealand, one was from the States, and they say, "Hey, you want to go to the uh, bathhouse with us?" So I said, "Yeah, that'd be great." You know, I brought my shorts, and that'd be great to do that. Well, you didn't need your shorts at the bathhouse in Korea. <laughs> that, that that doesn't go go down like that. So when I share with Korean people, I say, look, you people are very expressive, which is good, but you don't have to be quite as expressive. Because <laughs> the first time I'm there, um, you know, I come out of the, the room, you know, and there we are in, in our birthday suit with everybody. They don't even know what that phrase birthday suit means there. But anyway, the first Korean guy that comes up to me looks and says, ha! And, you know, he'd never seen something so big without clothes on, I guess. <laughs> So thankfully, God had really brought a lot of healing to our lives and my life, especially. Um, so I was able to endure that. Now, when the kids came up and saw me and started calling their friends over, that was a little bit rough. But anyway, we're over that now. So we go to the, I go to the bathhouse every time I'm there and invited. But in Korea and not just Korea, but around the world, I've noticed that our image and view of God has really been skewed over the years. Um, how we see God and how we perceive God, I think, is very important if we're going to walk the life that God wants us to walk. And the view that most people have of God is, is really distorted. And so in, in, in my case, I can tell you that for as a pastor for years, I would at different times teach on God's love. And, and you know, it's easy. You, you can find the verses. John 3.16 is a pretty good one. Most of the kids that were up here singing earlier probably have that memorized. We know that verse. We've learned it at an early age. But what does it really mean to us? And so for me, as a, as a pastor had preached this message many times, I, I could speak of God's love, but it was an intellectual knowledge, but it was not an experiential experience. And that was very difficult for me. And so about 13 years ago, um, I found myself suicidal, wanting to leave my wife and children and just run away. I wanted to, um, I was very angry. The projection that I had of, of the Father to people and my own family was very distorted. And I always say that I probably hurt more people in those years than I helped. And it wasn't on purpose, but, you know, wounded people wound people. Hurting people hurt people. And my understanding of God was not that good. And so I want to just share with you this morning a message that I call, Who Do People Say That I Am? But really, who do you say that God is? And that's an important question for you to answer. When people see you and I, what image and view of God do they, do they receive from us? And so I want to just read a few verses in Mark chapter 8, and then I'll, I'll just uh, share from my heart here what I think um, God would want to say. But Jesus was one day walking with his disciples. He, of course, he was just healing people as he always did, ministering to people as he always did. And in Mark chapter 8, he just gets done healing a blind man. It's interesting to see that when he was done, he told the man, don't go back to the village, but go home. And I think one of the reasons he may have said that is because he didn't want people to, to follow him just for the fishes and loaves and the miracles. Um, I think the fishes and loaves and miracles are great. We want them. We need them. But if that's the only reason we're following God, there's an emptiness there. Well, then it says, and I'm going to read here in verse 27 uh, through verse 30. 
Jesus and his disciples, I'm in, are you in Mark chapter 8? Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? And that's the key question. What about you today? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter made that statement. He said, you are the Christ. And we know that was a revelation from God to him. Jesus said in verse 30, he warned them not to tell anyone, tell anyone about him. Now, years ago, I was, um, we were building a church and um, I was in town somewhere and a, a young lady came up to me and said, are you Vince Mercadani? I said, yeah. She said, well, I'm, you know my daddy. So I said, well, who's your daddy? And I instantly thought of that song that when, you know, I was young, you know, that, anybody remember that song? Who's your daddy? Is he rich? Is he rich like me? Anybody? Okay, well, anyway, that was a song back when some of you were really young. Anyway, anyway, I remember that, but it's always stuck with me when it comes to God. And you say to somebody, well, who's your daddy? How do you perceive God? Because this is a critical question. I think this is the question that could answer our, our need for evangelism. Because what kind of God are we projecting to people when we're out there sharing Christ? Is he a, is he a friendly God? Is he a mean God? Is he going to zap me? Is he going to help me? Is he going to leave me? Is he going to beat me up? We we need to know these things. And the projection that we give is is so important. When we go to Korea, it is amazing the, 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 the need that they have for good fathering. Not that their fathers don't love them, not that the pastors don't love them, but there's a, a really negative projection. Well, I just want you to think this morning, um, about Jesus and who he was, and we understand that Jesus was the greatest representation of the Father. It said in John chapter 14, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is a pathway, but the Father is the destination. And several times, in fact, at least five or six times from John chapter 5 until John 14, Jesus says something like this in similar wordage. He says, the words that I speak are not my own. He said, they're words that I heard my father speak. And he said, the things that you see me do are not things that, you know, I just conjured up. I just thought, well, this would be a nice thing to do. They're things I saw my father do. And so when you you see that, you, you have to believe then that when you see the son, you see the father. And so Hebrews um, chapter 1 verse 3 says the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. So here you and I are. We come to Christ one day, and thankfully for that, that's, you know, He is the way and the truth and the life. We didn't come to Him just because, you know, we just thought it was a great idea. The Spirit of God convicted us, showed us our need for uh, a Savior. We We were... With his help, we're able to receive that, and, and then Jesus is now teaching us how to live by his spirit, a life of holiness and godliness, and drawing us closer to God so that we might be more like him. I think it's interesting, in this story that I just read in Mark, when Jesus was saying to them, don't tell people who I am, you know, in other words, just keep this quiet right now, I, I know that one of the main reasons was 
because he didn't want people to come and set him up as a king or some general. You know, they would have misunderstood that he was there just to redeem and the, the Jewish people from the oppression of Rome. But I think it's more than that. You see, how can we really share him if we don't know him? Just because we read a verse that says, oh, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God, or we read a verse that said, God loves us, how can we really share that? It, the message of the gospel is more than just something we speak. It is more so something we live. And the old black preacher said this years ago, he said, some things are better felt than told. You see, our greatest influence is not what we say more times than not. It's the life that we live. And the, the, the Christ inside of us, the Spirit inside of us, God Almighty Himself inside of us, is something that will come forth and it will touch people's lives. And so it's not so much who you are, but what you are. Yes, who I am is a child of God, but what I am is now a child of God. You see, there's a little bit of a difference in that. I'm learning more and more. I'm certainly not there. There's so much more for me to learn and so many more things that I'm dealing with and struggling with in life, like all of us. But I know that I know that I know that I'm a child of God now. And I know that, as I say, it's on my business card, I'm DLB. At the end of my name, it's Vince Mercadante, DLB. And people say, well, what does that mean? It simply means I'm daddy's little boy. And now people, you know, in Korea use that, in England use that, and Holland use that. People all over the world are starting to use that little phrase because that's really who we are. You know, when Jesus um, was coming up out of the water in Mark chapter 1, he was baptized and he saw the heavens open up. He saw the uh, dove falling upon him, the, the power. Then he heard the voice say, this is my son whom I love, whom I am well pleased. I, I actually spoke on that here a couple years ago. Um, notice the voice didn't say, this is my beloved pastor in whom I am well pleased. Or this is my beloved prophet in whom I am well pleased. If you look in um, Ephesians 4, 11 and following, you have the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, and evangelist. I think Jesus fulfilled all of those roles in some respect. But he was a son. So the question then, which I think demands an answer for you and I, just for ourselves is who do we say that he is? Who is God to you? Who is the Father to you? How do you look at him? For me, for most of my Christian life, up until about 10 or 11 years ago now, God Almighty, I could deal with Jesus. I could, I could see him for who he was, I thought. Um, I could relate to him. The Spirit, you know, trying to relate to Him the best I could, but the Father was a little bit harder for me. And so for me, the Father was a giant spiritual cop in the sky. He had in one hand a lightning bolt. In another hand, He had a vial of deadly disease. And He was waiting for me to mess up so I would get either one or the other. Now, where does that concept come from? Where is it that we learn or we at least perceive that God is mean and angry all the time? But that's how some of us see him. And so we're afraid of him. Well, how in the world can you, how does it, I don't know how to actually say the wording here right, but you invite somebody to Christ and say, look, God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Invite him into your life. But don't mess up because you're going to get hit with a lightning bolt or cancer or some disease if you do. 
And by the way, you get to spend eternity with this God. Well, you know, like, I don't even like to go to people's houses that are mean. Sometimes I don't go home because I have a mean dog at home. That was a joke. (sighs) Anyway, uh, I used Vic's joke. It didn't work. You you see, sometimes, (laughs) you know, I was shocked when I got here. For two years, Vic has been telling me he was a pastor. And when I was here a couple of weeks ago, Daryl was speaking, and it was a great message, by the way, and I just thought he was filling in for Vic, but oh well. Some people just, you know. Anyway, is God that mean and angry God? To some of us, that's how we perceive him. To some, he's that quick-tempered God. You know, he's explosive. He just, again, like I said, waiting for us to mess up. To some, and maybe to you, is he a distant God? You know, is he a God that's way up there? You know, I hate the phrase, the old man upstairs. He is not the old man upstairs. Uh, in fact, he may be upstairs, but he's in here. This is where he dwells. Uh, I think he's everywhere, but this is where I'm more comfortable knowing he's at. But, you know, sometimes he's, um, you know, the distant or he's absent, you know, with all of the struggles we have to deal with life, and every one of us has has a life that has been touched with that, you know, we wonder if he's even around. You know, when the economy goes bad, we lose a job, our churches have problems, or or our bodies go awry with disease or things, we wonder where in the world is God? Well, he's right there. He's never left us, nor will he ever forsake us. And we sang about it this morning, joy always does come in the morning. And weeping may endure for the night, but the weeping is not because he's mean. The weeping, I think, has something to do with drawing us closer in trust with him and letting him have the control of our life that he wants. For some people, he's that unaffectionate and non-responsive God. And again, this was my issue. I knew him intellectually, but affectionately I didn't. And so my whole Christian life was fear-based rather than affection-based. And we see this so many times in Korea. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I, I was teaching in a, the same city, actually, I'm going to this week. And normally when we teach, we you know, have about 11 hours of this, which is actually six when you consider interpretation. But one of the things we do is we hug people. And I'll stand in for a father. Rose will stand in for a mother. I'll stand in for a pastor as well. And at the end, we, we give them a mother or a father's embrace. And in this one time I was there, this 27-year-old woman who was a leader of the school that I was teaching in, she'd been in this school for, uh, as a leader for four or five years, I don't remember, but she would have heard similar messages to what I was teaching. And it was, came her time for the embrace. I, I held her and she's crying on my shoulders and she just wouldn't let go. So you just hang on until they're ready, you know. And when she was done, she said to me and the class through the interpreter. She said, I'm 27 years old and I have never hugged a man in my life, not even my father. I was in New Zealand back in 2005 and there was this big Maori guy. And this guy was, you know, a little taller than me and he was a, he was a monster of a guy. He had a broken ankle, so he was on crutches. And I had taught a message about God's love and I just said, look, if anybody needs a father's embrace at the end, come up. Well, just about before we close, he hops up and he stands in front of me. And he threw his crutches down. Now, I didn't know if he was going to hurt me, because even with the crutches and the broken leg, I think he could have hurt me. <laughs> but he literally 
jumped at me and embraced me and about killed me. He's hugging me to death. And he cried on my shoulder like a baby, which is not something that a, a, a Maori guy would do in most cases. And he said, I have never been hugged before like that in my life, not even from my father. And Rose, in one of the classes the next day, a 42-year-old lawyer came back to class and he testified to the class. He said, I'm 42 years old. I've never hugged my mother before until I hugged Rose last night. You see, there's such a, a need for affirmation and affection. And if we don't have that, we're going to look for the wor- to the world for those things. I believe that's one of the reasons immorality is so rampant in our world. People are just looking for love, but it's in all the wrong places. And there's this void that is within all of us that only God can fill. My wife should be the greatest person in the world to help me with my needs, affirmative needs, my value needs. But even she cannot do what only God can do. And so... Even in the church today, where we have a high divorce rate, all the sins of the world seem to be the same in the church. We see people leaving the church every day. In this country, uh, 4,000 churches start every year, approximately. But every year, 7,000 churches close. Every year in this country, about 1,500 pastors a month leave ministry for good forever. About 3,000 or more people leave evangelical churches just like this. Never to go back to church again. Fifty percent of pastors today say that they would get out of ministry completely if they had something else they could do. You see, there is a lack of the sense of value and affirmation that only God can give. And it comes, I believe, from a perception of how God views us. Now, for me, I was raised in a home, you know, both parents would have died for me if they, if they had to, I'm sure. But it was very violent on my mom's side. She was very violent. She was very loud and argumentative and, and verbally abusive as well. And it was just not a good situation. And so when you're raised in that, when you're raised in such anger and violence, it, you know, you almost become what you were raised And so two weeks before graduation in high school, I got kicked out of high school for assault on a student. And I was breaking two laws in California at the time. I got a full-time job two weeks before school was over, working full-time and working at night. They would have overlooked that, but it was the assault on the student that really, um, really got them, you know. They were afraid of me because I'd been in trouble before in this way. You see, there was such... A need for value and approval. There was such extreme jealousy and, and pride and arrogance and all of these things. And three months after I got kicked out of high school, that student married me. And now, of course, I've, well, the first year we were married, I almost killed Rose in a fit of rage. And uh, that scared the heck out of me. I wasn't a Christian at the time, but it really scared me. And I thought, well, I can't do this anymore. And fortunately, <laughs> we found Christ shortly thereafter. And I haven't touched her in that way since. But please pray for me because she constantly beats me. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, you see, you can't find what you need through another person. It has to be through an understanding of relationship and what that really means with the Father. And so what I like to do is look through the Word because it is true, I believe, when you saw the Son, you saw the Father. Now, The challenge in that is this. 
Jesus is the first begotten of the, of the Father. He's the first begotten Son. But now who are the sons and daughters as well? We are. And so that means when people see the sons and daughters, who are they seeing? The Father. And the painting and the portrayal that we give of him is extremely important. But you see, again, how can I really love if I don't feel loved? I have a theory, and the theory is this. Jesus, when he was asked what is the greatest commandment, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, spirit, and soul. The greatest of commandments. But he added, he said, the second is like that one, and it is love your neighbors yourself. And my theory is that we're doing that. And that's why we have such a mess in the world. Because we're loving others as we love ourselves. How do I know that we don't love ourselves? All you got to do is go with me to the gym a couple days a week. It's always amazing to see the guys my age or older grunting, you know, you know, they're, they're grunting on a little weight. Not too long ago, guy was grunting and screaming and hollering and everybody's looking. And this guy's my age or older. And Rose happened to be using that particular uh, unit machine that he was. She went over there. She looked and it was what she lifts. And we think, man, this is, well, there's a need for value. There's a need for approval. So when you see the son, you see the father. Well, Jesus, if he's the greatest portrait of the father to us, and we can look at stories in the Bible, I think very simply, and we can get a picture of what the father's like. So, for example, just one of the stories that I've always really enjoyed is in John 6. We'll not go there, but just write it down. John 6, and it's the story where Jesus fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. It's also in Matthew chapter 14. Well, when you, when you read the story, you know that Jesus had, had, especially you'll see this in John 14, John the Baptist had just been beheaded. Jesus was getting ready to go to a solitary place to rest and to, to deal probably with some grief that he may have been going through. And people kept following him. They found out where he was. And now the crowds are, are there. There's at least 5,000 men plus women and children. And, um, you know, one of the disciples said, Lord, it's, it's getting late. These people can't go home. The malls are closed. The restaurants are closed. So we're going to have to send them home. Otherwise, they're going to starve to death. And Jesus said, well, you go ahead and feed them. I think that's an important message for all of us. He's put us here to help feed. And we can only feed with what we've been fed. You know, we can only give to the level that we've been given. You know, comfort one another wherewith the comfort you've been given. And so, of course, that didn't work. They didn't have the eight months wages it would have taken, perhaps, to, to feed all these people. And Jesus said, well, what do we have? And one of the spiritual guys there, uh, I love it's, it. The spiritual guys, when they get a revelation, it's really good. You know, when they come to an understanding of who God is, that is always good, isn't it? When our spiritual leaders catch that. And so one of them says, well, we, all we have is this little boy over here. He's got, you know, he's got about five pieces of bread and he's got a couple of fish and but what is that among so many well you see a little is a lot to god and when you begin to just open up to him in your honesty and sincerity and say lord i don't understand you one of the problems of being a pastor for so many years and this is an inherent problem and i've taught at seven pastors conferences in korea taught you know i'm in contact with pastors all the time now that dealing with some of the hurts and the wounds that pastors go through and these guys are miserable Especially in Korea, because they have to live like they're spiritual. Now, that's, I'm not, that's not a play on word. We should be spiritual, which should direct the life we live. But these guys are not allowed to show any 
bit of a weakness in their life. It's tragic. So they have no one to talk to, and they're just dying out. I mean, they're, they're literally dying. They're dead men walking. So uh, Jesus said, look, have the, this, this, everybody sit down. You know the story. And he took the few pieces of bread and fish, and he, he fed all these people. And if you can look at the story and, and try to see, well, what is Jesus portraying of the Father in that? One of the pictures you have to get is a picture of compassion. He really cares. You see, the Father really cares for your needs. This is important for us to see. What are the needs that you have today? What are the hungers in your life? What are the things that are driving you or keeping you from being driven? What are those things that are, are, are tearing at your life today and you need help? I want you to know today, whatever it is, God, your Father has compassion for that. And he wants to meet that need. He wants to reach out to you. He wants to feed you, sup with you. He wants to spend intimate time with you to help you with your need. And I believe that's a picture that Jesus was portraying there. Now, as a side note, you, you have to wonder, uh, you know, I like, to, I like to put my imagination to work when I read some verses. And um, sometimes I don't care to be so theologically sound that I've just wasted what God is really saying. I'm very careful in saying that. I think we need to be theologically sound. However, this book was not written to theologians. When this book, when all this was written, probably 95% of the world's population couldn't read. So they really needed the Spirit to do some interpreting as well. But anyway, it says they took up the 12 baskets filled with what was left. Have you ever wondered what happened to those 12 baskets full? Where did they go? They didn't go to the local Salvation Army. They weren't there yet. But where would, where would you have sent the 12 baskets that were left over? I said that once in a, a seasoned pastor said, he said, well, I'm sure that each of the disciples got one. You know, 12 baskets, 12 disciples. Well, that sounds good. You know, sometimes the Bible, you, you can make good sermons out of some things that just are good sermons. They don't really have a lot to really help you with. Do you understand that? They sound good. You can make it roll pretty good. And uh, as we used to say years ago, man, that'll preach. Well, it may preach, but it's not really helping anybody, but it sounds pretty good. Well, I don't know what happened to those. But if I was in the story, and probably if you were in the story, what would you have done with one of the baskets at least? I'd have given it to the kid with the little lunch. The Bible says, you know, uh, give and it shall be given unto you, Luke 6.38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. He gave a little, he's receiving back. Uh, I think it would have been an amazing testimony. The testimony can be this. With what little bit God has given you today, with what little revelation of his love, with what little understanding of the intimacy that he wants with you, you can touch a lot of people. I'm going to tell you, the doors that God has opened for us in Korea and, and, and other places around this world now, they are not, it's not happening because I really got this message down. I wish I could tell you I got it down, but I don't. I'm still learning every day I get up and say, God, I need to know your love. Every day I need to, to walk fresh with you. I need to know how much you love me. I need to feel that in my heart. Every day. But I believe he wants to reveal that to you. And with what little he's given me, he's opened doors um, 
that have been unbelievable for us. I, this, this year I was in Korea nine weeks and spoke in nine weeks, uh, 63 days, I spoke 95 times. All on pretty much the same message, different you know, ways around it and different ministry and a different groups of people. But it's just been amazing, the hunger. And when you see someone understand how much God loves them and how much compassion he has for them, it begins to change their lives. Now, when I'm teaching, especially, you know, to a group other than a church group like this, I'll look for somebody and and I'll look and see if God's going to speak to me specifically about somebody. And then I'll focus my attention on that person. And every time I teach, I do that. That's on one or two people that I will focus on. And I'm trusting that it's God revealing to me that that person needs to really be touched with their love. And so one of the times I was teaching, there was a, uh, a young lady who sat maybe two or three rows back. And for some reason, she caught my eye. She was different than all the other Koreans. She was just different. She didn't, she, first of all, she had a, a, an issue like I do with weight. So that meant she had a rough life in Korea because everybody there is skinny as your finger, most of them. And so if you're abnormal, you're a spectacle there. I focused on her the first time, then the second session I was doing a, a lesson. I came down and just held her hand and looked at her eyes. I was teaching on a particular point, and I was using her as the influence and the, and the emphasis. And at lunchtime, the next day, the teacher, the, the leader of the class, came up and said, that girl, she took this class as a last resort, and she had openly discussed with us her desire to kill herself. And when I focused on her, she felt God's love in that, and it changed her. And now she wanted to live, and now she really began to believe that God loves her. You see, it's very simple. You just love on people. You just, you just be there and speak to people. I had a friend of ours in, in Iowa, and I felt one time that to call her, I didn't call her. I felt... A week later, because I was involved in a good TV program. You know, that's not a good time to hear from God for some people. Okay, I'm just being honest. And especially if it's NCIS, you don't want to get... Um, so the next week, I'm watching something, and I uh, call Cindy, and I, you know, I'm, I didn't... And see, Cindy called me. <laughs> so the, the third week, the third week, I felt the same impression... So I reluctantly got up and called Cindy, and she was crying. When I, when she, hello, she was crying. I said, Cindy, what's the matter? Cindy was sitting there at that moment with a loaded thirty-eight held to her mouth. She had just made this, said this prayer, God, if you're real, you need to show me right now or it's over. Now, God wants to use all of us in ways like this, and there's times that we need those phone calls. So God is a God of compassion. Let me give you another story, and it's, it's in uh, John chapter 8, and it's the woman caught in adultery. You're familiar with that story, I know, and, and I just love that story because it, it really is a picture of God's love for us. And in the story, it's just simply, you know, just simplifying this. Jesus is in the temple teaching, so he's got all the religious guys there now, and, you know, they're always trying to catch him in a, in a fault somewhere, kind of trying to catch him in a mistake. And somewhere, someone 
catches a woman in adultery. Now, I don't know exactly how it happened. Um, again, I'm using some imagination here. I'm just trying to, to, to get a picture of my God and what he's like. I, I get a picture. If she was caught in the very act of adultery, it could have been that somebody had opened a door and saw her in bed with somebody and they caught her. And if that's the case, they could care less about her. All they wanted to do was catch Jesus in some kind of mistake or find something to, to fault him with. I believe they would have just grabbed her and taken her and brought her and stood her between Jesus and the crowd. Now, if that's how it went down, and it may not have, but if it is, she would have either been naked or almost naked, which would have been a very humiliating thing for her or for anybody. But even if she wasn't naked, she was caught, and now she's in front of everybody, and it's just a real bad issue. My question would be, well, where's the guy that was in that? You know, if, if this was sin for her, it would have been sin for him, so how come he's not up there with her? It'd been, I'd have felt better about the story of two people were up in this, you know, but it wasn't. It was just her. And you know the story, they said to Jesus, okay, you know, what are you going to do now? You know, they're, they're, they're thinking this, they're, they're waiting in, in a tense moment to see how he is going to handle this. He kneels down, he writes in the ground, he gets up and he says, you guys that are without sin... Throw the first stone. And you know, from the oldest to the youngest, they leave. Now, here's the portrait and the picture I get of my father here. You see, Jesus, I believe, had every right to take a stone and throw it. According to the law, that was the punishment. He could have done that, I believe, and would have been justified. And how could you argue with that? Except he's been teaching grace. But legally, according to the law, he could have done that at that time. But he didn't do that. If she was in a, any kind of a compromised position physically, if she was not dressed properly, I think one of the first things he'd have done is put a robe around her or put something on her. He didn't, he didn't just brush her sin off. He said to her, um, woman, where are there your accusers? She said, well, I, I have none. He said, well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. The message is always go and sin no more, by the way. Right? It's, it, this is not a message of sloppy agape, just go ahead and do what you want and God's going to love you and work you through this. No, I think it's one of the reasons the Spirit of God is here to help us through things and to give us the ability to live a holy life and to help us through that. But when I see this story, the picture of him that I get is that he is a God of safety. You see, God is a safe place to be. You can take anything to him. Any looks. Statistically in the church, even today, probably more than 50% of men have issues with pornography. Um, we know that all the sex sins and all the other sins that go on, we know they're rampant. But you see, you can bring any one of those things before God and sit down with Him and say, Look, God, I have this problem. I have this need. I have this, this issue. I, I'm filling this up with all the wrong things. and I need your help. And God is a safe place to go. And he doesn't pick up the stone and hit you over the head with it. He doesn't shame you and bring you out necessarily in public where the Jackson Harrow gets your story. Now, the people in the audience will do that. The people in the audience want the Jackson Harrow to know what you've done. God is not necessarily in, interested in that. He's a God of redemption. And so he's a safe God. So what are the things in your life today that... that you're struggling with those sins that we find ourselves every day being involved in and, and we just can't seem to, 
to get through them. Listen, you can bring those before God. Be open with Him and honest and work with Him through that. I have had people in my church before who were having problems with pornography, problems sleeping around, problems doing a lot of bad things. And the relationship I had with them was, next time you do it, come and tell me. Or before you get ready to do it, come and tell me. So I can kick you out of the church. No, not really. But so I can love you and I can pray with you and help you through that. And if you mess up, come tell me anyway and I'll pray with you and you can repent. And and listen, I've done that at least with three people. And every time I've done that openly with them as a pastor, they've always changed. Because they got a sense of God's love, I guess, through me. And they knew that it was a safe place to be. And they were able to be open and honest with what really bothered them. And it was amazing to see the changes. So he is a God of compassion. And he is a God of peace, uh, of uh, safety. But one other story I just want to briefly mention and then we'll pray. But I love the story where he is on the boat, and I know your pastor spoke a little bit about this two weeks ago. In Mark chapter 4, and, you know, Jesus gets on the boat with the guys. He goes to the stern, the back of the boat, and he falls asleep. And you know the story that the waves come up in the sea, and there's water, you know, there's got to be water going over the bow of the boat. These guys are getting wet. If they're getting wet, Jesus is getting wet. This is not a big boat. This is not a... a Destroyer. This is not a, you know, a giant USS whatever. This is just an old fishing boat. So Jesus is getting a wet, but he's sound asleep. And it's amazing, of course, that, you know, the disciples try everything first. They think of everything they can do. They're, they're trying to save their lives. And finally, when they know they're going to drown, they know they're, they're, they're lost, then they finally call out to Jesus. It's a picture of how you and I do sometimes. But I would have hated to have gotten that call to be the one to go wake Jesus up. You see, I don't like to be startled when I'm sleeping. And they didn't just walk up and say, Jesus, oh, Jesus, wake up. No, they screamed, Master, Lord, don't you care that we perish? And I believe that when that happened, now again, this is just, uh, we don't know, okay? But I'm just, knowing what I know about God and his love right now. This is a picture I get of this. I believe Jesus would have just opened his eyes, rubbed the sleep out of his eyes, and got up and he would have walked to the side of the boat. But before he does anything, he turns around and looks at the disciples. You know, where's your faith? I'm right here with you. He rebukes the wind and the storm and the storm's gone and everything's good and I would have hated to have been the first one that Jesus turned around and looked at eye to eye after that. But when I see that picture, the picture of the Father that I get is a God of safety, uh, excuse me, of peace and of rest. He's a God of peace and rest. Now, every one of us in this room have either been in a boat like that in the midst of a storm, or maybe you're in one right now. And I want you to know Jesus is right there. Peace. And rest to your storm. Every one of us in this room has been in a lion's den before. Or if not, you may be in one now. If not, you may end up in one next week somewhere. But you see, when Daniel got in the lion's den, I have this, uh, I, I, I got this information firsthand. Do you know what the first thing is he did when he fell into the lion's den with all these hungry lions? He looked for the biggest 
chubbiest, if they could be chubby because they were starved to death, biggest lion. He looked at it and said, lay down. I need to lay my head on you. I need a pillow. No, really, I didn't, I didn't hear that anybody, anywhere. You guys, you can, it's okay. It's, there's some things that are just, you're so used to Vic's jokes that mine just don't even, don't even rise to that level. Okay, listen, in the lion's den, he was able to rest. Peace and rest, Daniel. Didn't matter about the lions. And you may find yourself one day in that fiery furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I want you to know when you look in that furnace, there is one likened to the Son of Man. Some people say, can Christians dance? Well, some can and some can't. But when you, you looked in there, the Son of Man was dancing around with them. And the only thing that got burnt in that thing were the things that bound them. So the fiery furnaces are not there to destroy us. The fiery furnaces, I believe, are allowed to help us remove those things that destroy us and hinder us and free us. And the same with the lion's den and the same with the boat. He is a God of peace and rest. So I ask you again as I close this morning, who is he to you? Who is God to you? Is he the father that is going to be there all the time? Is he the God that you have always wanted? I think he is. A couple of years ago, I had some, uh, went through over a year of a lot of intense dreaming about my father who'd been dead this June. He's been dead 35 years. And, you know, weekly I was dreaming of him. And, and it got to the point after all those years after his death that, I could think about him and just start crying again. And, you know, you know, I went through a nine-year grieving period when he died. I was very young when he died. And um, I just kept praying, Lord, what is this? Why these dreams about my dad all of a sudden? And I was teaching a group one day. And in the middle of the group, I was sharing with them how I was having these dreams. And in the midst of that, just sharing that, the Lord spoke to me. And now I understood. What he was doing was giving me an image of somebody that was very close to me, my dad, my earthly dad, and showing me that the deepest need within me was intimacy with a father. And that helped me to understand even more just a couple of years ago how much he wanted to be a dad to me, how much he wanted to be a father to me. So I want to pray with you this morning, and I just want you to think about this. Do you need his compassion today? Are you longing for that peace and that rest? Are you really wanting a safe place to be. Your father loves you, and he wants you to serve him with affection rather than fear all the time. He wants to be the God that, and the father that you've always wanted. So I'm going to just ask you to, to pray with me as I just close. I just want to pray over you. And, Father, I just lift up my brothers and sisters in this place and thank you for the opportunity Father, I know that in a group of this size that there's many that really need a sense of your presence. Really need to go beyond just the intellectual knowledge of who you are, but really need to experientially feel that love and relationship with you every day. I ask you, Father, to touch them right now. Father, there's some that even church at times it's not a safe place. 
Sometimes it's not safe to read our Bibles because then we see something that, oh, we know we're short falling in and we, we just don't seem to, to line up. But God, I, I pray that you let them know that it's safe today. That they can come with you with anything and they can say anything before you and be open and honest with you and uh, you'll help them through that. And Father, there's many I know just in this room to this morning myself included, my wife included, we need your peace and rest. Father, when we look at our children and we see the things they're struggling with in life, when we look at the economy and we wonder if we're going to make it another month, when we look at the, the situations in our government and wonder how in the world can we get through this, Father, when we get that report from the doctor, how how do we deal with this? I pray, Father, that you would bring a great measure of your peace and rest over this church. And, Father, that you would let this be your resting place with Daryl and his wife and Preston and his wife and the other leaders in this church. Truly be a daddy to them. Be a father to them. Let this be a seat, a place in this community, in this county, in this, this state, and even beyond, Father. A place where your love abounds. And father, that as they reach out to this community, that their reaching out would just be an outflow of an overflow of the inflow of your love. Father, that souls would be saved when they see this love. That lives would be changed when they see this love. Father, let it be, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. What I'd like us to do, if we can, uh, can we just stand together? And um, I believe that if you're a child of God today, God is in you. He loves you. If you're not a child of God,